like you to join me in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this day of celebration. Thank you for our children who brought the palm branches today and what joy they bring to us. Thank you for the joy of Christ in our hearts. But also we pray as we open your word that your spirit would speak to us in a new way, in a special way today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's fascinating how the body language experts uh, can go to a courtroom and watch every nuance of the jury or the uh, person accused or other people in the courtroom and uh, analyze that. And with today's media, hello, with today's media, better or worse, for better or worse, uh, it seems like they're scrutinizing the famous people every inch of the way. And I got caught up on it this week watching a little bit of the Masters golf tournament and what, reading in the reports, you know, they were watching every move, every step, every cringe, every stroke of Tiger Woods, and they actually watched every word he said. You could read his lips, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, we, we, we scrutinize and we hang on that. And there's been some of that watching President Zelensky of Ukraine as daily he gives a speech. And, People have seen his stature just rise, this man in his position, and on it goes. You can think of other people you've analyzed, maybe in an airport wasting time or waiting for the plane. You take your time and watch people go by. Friends, I want us to take a closer look today at Jesus, our Lord. And I call for the whole body of Christ, the church at large, to do the same, not just individually. Five years, I preached a scintillating sermon on Palm Sunday. Uh, your body language kind of so shows me that you don't remember the sermon or you didn't think it was so scintillating. I don't know what it is about Palm Sunday, but I end up drawing the straw and I appreciate it because it's a great day. Pivotal week, day in the week, the final week of Jesus life before the resurrection. Well, why was it a big deal? I have answered all your questions before, but I'll just run through them. Well, because the prophets Daniel and Zechariah and the writer of the Psalms all communicated God's script, predicting this day, the day that his anointed Messiah would enter Jerusalem on a colt with shouts of Hosanna surrounding him. No wonder Jesus said that the stones would cry out if he silenced the crowd as his Pharisees, the Pharisees wanted him to do. Well, why is it such a fascinating drama? Because Jesus was the director and the lead actor, timing the events for the Jewish festival at that same time and directing a cast of disciples and even a donkey. I'm sure Amanda has had a donkey in some of her plays, or maybe it was a person, but anyway, it's hard to direct these things. Philip Yancey writes, Jesus resolutely set his face for Jerusalem, knowing the fate that awaited him. The cross has been his goal all along. Now as death nears, he calls the shots. It's a dramatic day. Well, what about that temple in incident that happened later in the day or early Monday? The same day or the next, he goes dramatically to the temple court and declares his house to be a house of prayer instead of and for uh, prayer for all nations, as the prophet Isaiah had foretold. 
And so he cleared out the money changers and blocked the Gentile, that were blocking the Gentiles from worshiping there. At least that's one interpretation. I know the prophecy is what speaks to me, that he said, my house is a house of prayer for all people. And thus begins a dramatic week of teaching at the temple, confronting the religious leaders and rulers, retreating to the suburbs at night until the Passover supper with his disciples on Thursday evening. And then the arrest, the mock trial, and the ultimate crucifixion of our Lord on Friday. But I want us today to take an even closer look at Jesus, his emotions, his tears, somehow to look into his heart. So first I want to rewind the tape and travel two miles in reverse to Bethany and turn the calendar back a few months earlier for the scene at the grave of Lazarus. Then we will come back to Palm Sunday and Holy Week in just a few minutes. You heard the familiar story that uh, uh, we heard just now in scripture. Jesus delayed that journey to Bethany to the humble, hospitable home of dear friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, even though he knew that Lazarus had passed away. Why the delay? I think it was so there would be no question that Lazarus was dead, not mostly dead, dead. And that he was really raised from the dead. So Jesus could dramatically demonstrate God's resurrection power that would burst forth again a week later, that earth-shaking resurrection day. But before they moved to the stone away, Listen to the scripture. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Jesus wept. John verse 35. Yes, the shortest verse in the Bible. We joke about that sometimes. But so revealing, so important for us, especially I sense now more than ever, in my life at least, and in our world. Jesus wept. He was deeply moved at the grief of others, yes. But in spite of the pending miracle, I believe he too felt the painful arrow of sorrow. He wept. The writer of Hebrews in an earlier portion reminds us that Jesus empathized and felt every experience that we do. There is no denying, to me anyway, that this last couple years, these last months, even for some of us weeks and days, we've lost loved ones, confronted death head on, suffered grief, serious illness, COVID, cancer, and more, mental distress, depression, you heard the testimony from the youth just now. Financial stress, disappointments, and beyond those personal things. On a larger scale, we've wept over the scenes of horror in Ukraine and elsewhere. We live in a grasping, grieving world. Sometimes it seems like we're hanging by a thread. Am I too dramatic? Or is this, this is supposed to be Palm Sunday. Jesus wept. I know my struggles the last few months, and perhaps yours. 
Dear friends, Jesus cares deeply. I want youth to listen. I don't want to lose you. Don't take your walk with Jesus lightly, young people. Go deep with him, because I know the hurts and impacts are coming. Senior citizens, all of us in between, we live his, we need his love. In spite of what Karl Marx said, that religion is the opiate of the people, wrongly said. Not faith in Jesus. We count on Jesus' ever-present comfort and compassion. Look at Jesus. I've recently been reading with my banding group the early fast-moving chapters of the book of Mark. What a picture of compassion. Releasing a demon-possessed man, healing a suffering, lonely woman, raising a little girl for her grieving family, feeding hungry crowds, calming his frightened disciples. Such beautiful pictures of our tender Lord. Doesn't sound much like our world, does it? Not only does Jesus feel and respond to our needs, but Jesus offers the radical only solution to sorrow and death, the resurrection. C.S. Lewis writes in Miracles, Jesus has forced open the door that had been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in the cosmic history has opened. I just taught, I was with my Sunday school class of college students. We listened to a couple of renditions of a great southern gospel hymn. Ain't no grave gonna keep my body down. When I hear the trumpet sound, I'm gonna get up out of the ground. Ain't no grave gonna keep my body down. I told them about Mount Pleasant over here. You know where Mount Pleasant is? I want to be there on Resurrection Day, I tell you. It's going to be exciting. You know, I witnessed another aspect of the resurrection. In the mid-1990s, I returned to Sierra Leone, where we had served for 10 years, right in the middle of the 10-year Civil War. One of the most brutal in the world, other than the missiles that have been landing, it's at least as brutal as Ukraine. People's legs and arms and lips and noses were chopped off in the name of I don't know what. They called it a civil war, it was uncivil. And so people had to run and flee. The town of Bendembu, where my parents spent seven years, and I've been many, probably a hundred times to, the rebels came in front of a church at 5.30 morning prayers. And the faithful were in their gathering, and when they walked out, they mowed them down with their AK-47s. I stood at the pile of dirt where that group of Christians were buried. And yet, my friends, Saidu Kano and many fled to Guinea across the border along with two million others who were displaced. And there it was that Joanne Lyon found them, brought a couple bags of rice and her vision for World Hope was started. And World Hope, or what they called it, Limbs of Hope was started. And now in the country of Sierra Leone, just these last few weeks, the chief of police for the whole country signed a contract with World Hope International to end trafficking of women and children. They've been planting water wells all across the country. They opened schools. That's resurrection of hope in the midst of the worst of death. That's the little experience I've had.
In this little town of Bethany, just weeks before his own resurrection, the truth is out. I am the resurrection and the life, said Jesus. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? <laughs> he said to her, and I say it to you. He says, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. John 11, verse 40. From grief to glory. So here's the invitation. Take a good long look at, look at Jesus today. There is powerful healing and comfort from his heart to ours. It's ours for the believing, demonstrating, and continued praying for Jesus to meet others suffering people in the midst of their grief all around the world. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. Thank you. So now we want to fast track back again to Palm Sunday. That's a few months ago. Jesus came up and over the mount from the same Bethany with the parade of locals still rejoicing probably over the miracle of Lazarus, palms waving, waving in triumph. And Jesus pauses and gazes down over Jerusalem and you might say that he lost it. it says he, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He was just being paraded as king. They were shouting, they were praying, and somehow Jesus is weeping. I hope it catches you as kind of a shock. This is actually a stronger word than the word used in John 11 for weeping. It's actually the word often used for wailing. They're shouting. He's wailing out loud. What an emotion. Was it just anger? Was it frustration, disappointment, grief? He says, even if you, even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus knew the devastating results of their reluctance and rejection of the kingdom of God, which Jesus brought and preached over and over. Like they've been saying on the nightly news, what you see might be disturbing. Look at verses 42 and 44, or excuse me, 43 and 44. It's almost too disturbing to read in church. Jesus knew the devastating end results of their reluctance and rejection of the kingdom. Imagine it. Here's the golden city of Jerusalem, the city of David, where God's people were gathered to remember the Exodus and celebrate the Passover. The children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the descendants of David and Solomon with the benefits of the prophets, and they rejected God's anointed. How could, how could they do this? How could they miss it? I've wondered how this week. Their eyes were too focused on their own little program, not God's program. They wanted a conquering hero to overthrow Roman occupation, perhaps, or a leader who would endorse their comfortable status, their religio-political arrangements. 
Over and over in the Gospels, they stubbornly and blindly rejected Jesus and his message of the kingdom of God. So once again, do Jesus' tears have anything to say to us? We know what the first tears in Bethany said to us, comfort, hope, resurrection. What about these tears over Jerusalem? I've been mulling over this for the last three or four days. Does Jesus continue to look over his church today? Is he looking? Yes, we know he does. We know in the book of Revelation, the second and third chapter, he looks at his church carefully. He knows our deeds. He checks our body language for sure, the body of Christ language. He sees our faith and our victories, but he also eyes our sins and our failures. I'm sure he sees persecution of believers around the world, which we pray for weekly. He's watching. I used a few delete buttons this week on this sermon, even early this morning, contemplating how to apply Jesus' view of the church today. You know, we have the benefit of being this side of the resurrection, this side of the cross. We ought to get it right. We can say the Old Testament guys, you know, and the people in Jerusalem, they, they, they missed the boat. Well, what, what excuse do we have? And so I'm not sharing everything that I thought. <laughs> You're probably happy for that. If you want to, ask me later. But I decided to maybe share a couple of resources that God has given us so that we can do better than they did. I want you to read and reread the powerful and nourishing words and example of Jesus in the Gospels. This is a good week to do it. Read it over again. I think I've determined I've got to read the Gospels my whole life. Just keep reading them over again. Powerful stuff. Second, learn the lessons of history of the church through the ages. It ought to be clear as a bell to us where we need to spend our energy and our time and not build kingdoms made with stuff in this world. Number three, look beyond the, to the global church, the body of Christ worldwide. It's not about us. It's about the whole body of Christ, and they have a lot to teach and inspire us with. Number four, we need to wean ourselves from the endless chatter of worldly pundits and voices that are feeding us, I don't know what. Instead, we need number five, to listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And six, target our mission. Make the target of our mission as a church our homes, our neighborhoods, rather than the halls of power. History tells us that's the better choice. So let's not allow his tears to be in vain. Let us repent. Let us change before our feeble efforts end up in the rubble of history. We have such a lofty agenda to embrace. We have the good news to proclaim, Jesus to lift up. 
his mercy and his compassion to we to do it as the salt and light of the world that he called us to be. Let's be kingdom people that we were singing about earlier. Now, the question finally is, where do we get the strength to do this? <laughs> I think we find it this week, Holy Week. We find it in the garden, we find it at the cross, we find it at the empty tomb. You know, four days after this day of Palm Sunday, Another set of tears and anguish won the day over all our suffering, our grief, and our waywardness. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Not my will, but yours be done. Luke 22:42. And I think as we heard it early in the scripture, Hebrews again describes it. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Hebrews 5, 7 to 9. Oh, he is so worthy of our praise and thanks. And so I close with this prayer of thanksgiving on Palm Sunday. Thank you, Jesus, for bringing glory out of grief for us on our journey. Thank you, Jesus, for calling us with tears to wholeheartedly live for you and build your kingdom on earth. And thank you, Jesus, for submitting your life to win the victory for fallen creation with your loving sacrifice and glorious resurrection. Today is a day of triumph, joy, and hope as we believe and live for Jesus, our King of kings, our Lord of lords. Amen. <laughs>